620 WTMJ broadcasting live from day five of the Wisconsin State Fair. As I said to Gene earlier, it is a Chamber of Commerce day out here. Let's be honest, um, Thursday rains that I think kept the crowd down. Friday was just freezing. It you it felt like early November here. You had temperatures in the mid to upper 50s and a 20 mile an hour wind out of the northwest. But today is absolutely perfect. So come on out. Enjoy the State Fair. Lots of people are going to be stopping by. If you do, stop by our broadcast facility. We're going to have live programming here all day. Scafidi and Bill Stat will be in at noon and then John McCure for Wisconsin's Afternoon News at 3 o'clock as well. All right, we start off today's show like we start off every show. Three big things. And by the way, a lot of interesting stuff coming up on today's show, including would you buy the Bronco that was involved in the O.J. Simpson slow-speed chase? You might have a chance if you decide you want it. Lots of stuff coming up. But let us start. All morning you've been hearing the, the the latest crime report, story about yet another carjacking in Greenfield. You remember what, about a week or so ago, there was the story about the woman who was carjacked. Somebody pulled out brass knuckles. She was hit. Um, and then ultimately she was able to fight off her attackers. Those people are, to my knowledge, still at large. You've had one story after the other. You have local police departments now advising people, hey, you know, you have to be aware of your surroundings. And the reality is most of this crime is spreading from the city of Milwaukee. Not all of it, but most of it is. You have criminals in the city of Milwaukee who have now decided that they are going to go out to the suburbs looking for targets of opportunity. Greenfield, Greendale, Shorewood, you name it. You're starting to see this happening. Also, some of the other counties. Now, one of the things that happens is when you get outside of Milwaukee County and some of the people decide, hey, for example, let's carjack a woman at 730 in the morning outside of Piggly Wiggly in West Bend. Once the people get caught, well, it's treated differently than the catch and release system that is the Milwaukee County court system. But that doesn't make you feel any better if you're the one that's been victimized in the crime. So, What's happening is police departments are saying all over, hey, you, you need to be aware. And I, I understand. I don't fault the police departments in saying that. You know, be aware of your surroundings. But at the same time, what does it say when we have crime in a community that is so out of control that you have to tell people, well, be careful if you park in a parking lot at a grocery store and you're walking out at 8 o'clock in the morning, be mindful of your situation. Be aware of your circumstances because you're going to have criminals, many of whom, Not all of whom, but many of whom have been through the catch-and-release system many times, should not have been out in the first place, and then they're out committing crimes. And there is this ongoing, I think, frustration with this. Now, the problems in the city of Milwaukee when it comes to crime are not unique. Um, Other urban areas are having the same sort of explosion of crime. So what a number of governors have done is they've decided, you know what, no, It's easy to just kind of like turn our heads and say, all right, the problems of the city of St. Louis, the problems of the city of Milwaukee, the problems of wherever, it's fine. It's let the mayors deal with it. But what a number of governors have started to do is they've started to say, you know what, we have to recognize that the way you solve crime, or at least the way you get a control on crime, is you need more so-called boots on the ground. So a number of governors are sending state patrol officers into urban areas in an effort to assist 
local police departments in trying to, uh, again, arrest and prevent crime. Big story in the Washington Post over the weekend about how the, the governor of Missouri, who is a Republican, normally at odds with the Democrat mayor of St. Louis, has just simply said, hey, could crime in St. Louis is so out of control, we are sending state patrol officers in to assist in trying to make arrests. Right, 414-799-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, in Wisconsin, the state patrol is not as large as it is in other various states. And the state patrol does have law enforcement authority. Primarily, the state patrol is responsible for you know, investigating collisions that occur on the state highways, enforcing traffic laws and things of the like. But in some states... What the governors are doing is they're saying, hey, we're going to use you, your sworn law enforcement officers, we're going to use you as boots on the ground to go help because we want huge police presences in areas. 414-799-1620, that is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. You know what? I think that is something that we should be looking at in Wisconsin as well. As the problem and the epidemic of crime from Milwaukee starts to spread, I think Anything that we can do to get more cops on the street, more law enforcement officers, whether it's the county sheriff's deputies, whether it's police officers, or whether it's state patrol, the more we can get officers involved in investigating and trying to catch criminals, the better off I think we are going to be. I think people are tired of simply being victims. And I understand, again, I do not fault the law enforcement people by saying, okay, be aware, be conscious. You know, if you're going out to your car in a parking lot to have a grocery store at 7.30 or 8 or new, or 3 o'clock in the afternoon, you know, you, you need to be aware because you could be a victim. I don't, I don't fault them giving advice like that. But I think it is outrageous that the new normal is starting to become that we have to tell people, hey, watch out. It's 3 o'clock in the afternoon. You could be robbed. 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I think if the option is there to start enlisting, say, state patrol officers to help out with some of the violent crime that is spreading from the city of Milwaukee, I say go for it. What do you think? It's big thing number one. We discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. If you want to join us, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. We're broadcasting live from the Wisconsin State Fair. It's day five. This is Jeff Wagner. It's 844. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. With the Trump administration continuing to wage battles on numerous fronts, do you think Congress ought to take the lead when it comes to setting the legislative agenda? Discuss with Scafidi and Billstat, 135 this afternoon. They're going to be broadcasting live from the State Fair, sponsored by Pella Windows and Doors of Wisconsin. All right, our number, 414-799-1620, which is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Speaking of the State Fair, Jacob, who is calling us from the grounds of the State Fair. Jacob, good morning. Jacob. Hi. What? Hi, Jacob. This is ridiculous. Hi. This is ridiculous. I mean, I live in the suburb of St. Francis. They shouldn't be bringing the crime from the north side of Milwaukee and that to the suburbs. What do we do? We're typically a peaceful community. I just find that to be ridiculous. Well, Jacob, you're, you're exactly... I mean, thanks for the call. I appreciate you joining us and enjoy the fair. I mean, here, here's the deal. You're exactly right. What is happening, and I want to be real clear here, not all the crime that goes on in the suburbs or suburban counties originates in the city of Milwaukee. 
but a lot of it is. One of the things you're seeing is it is spreading, and whether it's St. Francis or Greenfield or Greendale or Shorewood, it is spreading, and there is this degree of frustration that average people have. You know, you're paying your taxes, you're doing stuff, you don't want a situation where it's, you don't want a situation where you are afraid to go out. You want a situation where, you know, you, you expect that there's going to be police protection and you are going to be safe. That is just not the case anymore. And I think what's going to have to have to happen is you've got the suburban communities, and the police departments do a great job, but they're going to have to start to look at alternative ways and things that you can do in order to try to get this crime problem out of control. Because one of the things that happens is if people start to feel unsafe, communities start to go down the toilet. You can just see that, that, that swirl and hear that swirling sound that's going on. And nothing, nothing kills communities faster than people are, who are coming out to go to their car after leaving a grocery store, and you have people who go up and punch women in the face with brass knuckles and steal their cars. It is an ongoing problem. And people need to wake up to this. Um, let's see. Uh, our text lines exploded. Milwaukee does utilize state patrol in some of their investigations, especially when they believe a pursuit will ensue. Um, yes, I- I- exactly. I mean, the state patrol will, in fact, pursue. That ties into that whole chase policy, chase policy, and I think that they need to do that, and they need to continue to do it. It's a big deal, and it needs to be addressed. And if you don't do this, things are going to have huge problems. Let's see. Um, did you hear about three persons from Milwaukee that hijacked two cars in Wisconsin's Delves last week? They were caught in Columbia County after trying to flee the police. Um, Mitch and Sturgeon Bay text, why wouldn't they want state troopers in municipalities? Protocol, coordination. Well, I mean, coordination is an issue, but the bottom line is you want people there. You want more boots <clears throat> on the ground. Now, at the same time, I understand that this is not the, the be-all, end-all, because, again, especially in Milwaukee County, where you have people that are given chance after chance after chance, and there is a reluctance to send people to jail once they end up getting caught, it ends up becoming a huge problem. So I understand it's a frustration that a lot of the police have. You catch people, and then you have the revolving door criminal justice system that puts them back on the street. I think the important thing is, though, more boots on the ground, more and more deterrent because I don't want to wake up in a community where it is now acceptable to say, hey, our solution to crime is to tell people, be careful when you walk out. I mean, be careful when you go out to the parking lot at 730 in the morning outside the Piggly Wiggly Shopping Center in West Bend. Be careful when you go to the parking lot at the Pick and Save or whatever at 3 o'clock in the afternoon because you could be a victim. It is unacceptable for us to be raising a nation of victims. And if the problem is the crime problem in the city of Milwaukee spreading out in to the suburbs. We need to do everything we can to possibly stop that. If that means more boots on the ground, great. Let's bring in the state patrol. Let's do what we have to do. If that means getting rid of some of the judges, oh, we've got a standing ovation here. If that means getting rid of some of the judges in Milwaukee County who refuse to take people who have committed multiple crimes and getting rid of them and putting people on the bench who recognize that public safety is an important thing, well, maybe it's time to start doing that. 
that. But sooner or later, we've got to come up and we've got to say, look, this is unacceptable. We live in a really nice community. We are not going to be held hostage by the relatively small criminal element that's out there. And if it means building more prisons to send these people to jail, well, God bless. Build more prisons to send people to jail. Period. Case closed. Big story number two coming up. Should leakers be prosecuted? Stick around. It's 850. This is Jeff Wagner. We're broadcasting live from the Wisconsin State Fair. It's 852. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ, broadcasting live from the State Fair. Come by just like a large contingent of very attractive young women stopping by from Appleton and West Dallas and all. And too many names for me to remember, but I appreciate you all coming down here. Stop off. Again, this is going to be a Chamber of Commerce Day here at the State Fair. No question about it. We are right in the middle of the way we start off every program. Three big things. Big story number two. And there are certain heads exploding. The number two guy at the Department of Justice, this would be the United States Department of Justice, Rod Rosenstein, he's the man, actually, he's been in President Trump's crosshairs because he was the guy that made arrangements to appoint the special counsel. You know, we all know the controversy. In any event, you know, he was making the rounds of the shows over the weekend, and he was saying, look, um, we, we are going to make it a priority to go after people inside the administration, inside the government, and members of Congress who are illegally leaking classified information. Now, a lot of the leaks, I think, are coming from, the, and, and I think that what set off this latest chain was the story in the Washington Post the other day. Somebody took a classified transcript of two conversations that the president had right after taking office, one with the president of Mexico, one with the prime minister of Australia. These were, and and I guess I never realized this, but when the president has conversations with um, other heads of state, um, there, there are people who listen in on these, they make transcripts of them, and then these transcripts are disseminated to certain people because obviously the thinking is if you've got President Trump talking to the president of Mexico, um, People should know, at least perhaps inside the government, what they are discussing and what is said. So these these various conversations were were classified. Um, they, they had a top secret, I believe, classification. Well, somebody took them, and because they felt that there was things in the uh, transcripts that they could use to embarrass President Trump, they leaked them to the Washington Post, and the Washington Post runs with them. So this is just, it's the latest in a series of leaks of classified information. I have been consistent with this over the years. I don't care who the president is. I don't care if the president is George Bush or Barack Obama or Donald Trump. I do not think it is responsible for members of government who have access to classified information. You could be in the military. You could be part of the executive branch. I don't care. You do not have the right, and it is against the law, to leak classified information. So this has been going on on a regular basis. What part of the thing is happening with Donald Trump is that you have the the whole what they call the deep state thing. You have people that are embedded in government who don't like Trump, and so they're trying to embarrass him and do things like that. Okay, that's fine. But when it comes to dealing with classified information, I think you have to say enough is enough. So the deputy attorney general said, look, um, we're, we're going after it. You know, we are going to put a couple of attorneys on this, um, and, you know, we are going to prosecute the people that break the law, because it is, by the way, against the law to leak classified 
information. Now, one of the things that has a lot of people a little bit unhappy, particularly the journalists, you have to understand that the so-called quote-unquote journalists, now, they're right. Their goal is to report things. Their goal is also to try to help sell newspapers or help try to generate clicks for their websites or help try to generate you know, viewers for their different uh, shows. So one of the things and one of the tensions is you have reporters who get these leaks and then run with the information because, again, they're trying to generate interest or they're trying to sell newspapers or whatever. Well, what ends up happening is technically it could also, I think, be against the law. At least you could make an argument that it's against the law for the reporters to run and publish this information. And so there's some question about are they going to go after the reporters as well. The deputy attorney general came out and said, look, we're not going to do that. What we're trying to do, we are trying to identify the people who have access to the classified information. Those are the people that we end up prosecuting. So they're saying, okay, if you're a reporter for the Washington Post, you, you don't have to worry that you are going to be prosecuted if somebody gives you this information. But here's where it gets really interesting and where you're going to see some heads explode among the quote-unquote mainstream media. If you are investigating a leak, let's say, let's say I decide I get access to some top-secret document and I decide that I'm going to share it with you um, on the radio. Well, one of the things, if you're trying to investigate, okay, how did Wagner get access to this top-secret document? One of the, the first things that you would do is you'd say, okay, let's look at people that Wagner had contact with. And so how do you do that? Well, you go and you would start. If I was the prosecutor, I'd start by pulling the phone records of the, in this case, it would be me. Let, let's see, let's look at Jeff's cell phone records. Let's see who called him or who he called. Let's look at the numbers. And then you try to see, hey, oh, it's really interesting. The guy on the radio, he was contacted three times by this number. This number is assigned to somebody who works in the executive branch or whatever. Whose number is this? So one of the things that will inevitably, inevitably happen as a result of trying to identify and prosecute the leakers is you will see subpoenas going out to a try to look at the phone records, for example, or other various records of people who work for the Washington Post or the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel or Channel 4 or whatever, if they're the ones that end up running with the confidential information. And I guarantee you, you know, once that happens, you're going to see, again, heads start to explode. But as long as the so-called journalists are not the targets of the investigation, I, I don't have any problem at all looking with people's records in effort to determine who it was that they were talking to, because I think identifying the leakers is a matter of national security, pure and simple. All right, when we come back, big thing number three, the UAW goes down in flames in a very, very um, closely watched union election. I'll tell you all about it, and we're going to discuss why it is they failed. That's coming up in just a couple minutes. Right now, it's 8.59. This is Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. We're broadcasting live from Day 5 of the Wisconsin State Fair. This is Jeff Wagner. We're broadcasting live from day five of the Wisconsin State Fair. It is a glorious day out here. Come on out, stop by, say hi. Big story number three. In the last couple days, the United Auto Workers sustained a major, major defeat for the last, well, for a number of years. As automakers have moved, particularly foreign automakers, whatever that means nowadays, we'll talk about that a little bit later in the show, but as automakers have moved into the American South. 
and started opening up automobile plants. The United Auto Workers have viewed this as an opportunity. Let's let's try to unionize, and with a couple minor and no, minor exceptions, in general they have failed. Workers have decided no, we don't want a union. Well, um, for the last couple years, the United Auto Workers has been responsible for trying to organize a union at a Nissan plant in Canton, Mississippi. Um, there's about 3,500 employees who would be union eligible. And uh, the union really threw everything but the kitchen sink over the course of the last couple of years in trying to organize the, the workers. And, and the company fought back. So, again, it was one of these you know typical company union sort of battles. But at the end of the day, they had a vote. And of uh, about 3,500 people voting, Nissan workers overwhelmingly rejected efforts to unionize. Uh, the end of the ultimate vote was 2244 to 1307. So roughly about 62% rejected the proposal that they be represented by the United Auto Workers. And this was uh, again after after years of trying to organize this particular plant. Now, in the aftermath of this, the UAW says it is undeterred after attempt to unionize the Nissan plant fails. And they're saying, well, maybe we're going to try to get the National Labor Relations Board to order an- another election, you know, six months from now. Let's try to keep coming back. Let's try to keep, you know, asking and asking and asking, which, of course, begs the question, you know, what part of no doesn't the UAW understand? Now, it- it's interesting because... In this particular plant, um, veteran workers make about $26 an hour, which is slightly below what unionized auto workers make. And, and this is including benefits. You know, benefits add to this dramatically. But, you know, the, the workers, non-union workers, the non-union shop, make about 26 bucks an hour. Um, the unionized workers make slightly more. $26 an hour is well above the median wage that the average worker in Mississippi earns. Nissan also pays a roughly similar percentage of employees' incomes into their retirement accounts, as do the Michigan auto workers. One of the guys that voted against the union, he, he's interviewed in the story I'm looking at the New York Times, says, you know, before I started working here at this plant 14 years ago, I didn't have a 401k. I had one week of vacation. says, now I have four weeks of vacation. I'm off on every holiday. Nissan has provided a great living for me. Why do I need the union? Okay, 414-799-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, again, the interesting aftermath of this was despite spending a ton of money, despite trying to make its case, despite having a couple years to make its case, this proposal to unionize at this particular facility, um, and this was going to be one of the test cases, that it, it went down in flames. And yet the UAW is saying, we're going to come back. We're, we're going to try again in a couple months. We want to get another election ordered. So the question becomes, number one, what part of no don't they understand? But secondly, why? And this is what is so intriguing to me. Why is it that these attempts at union organizing in traditional manufacturing places are failing and failing so badly. 
414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. A couple weeks ago, I had a chance to watch the old Sally Field movie, you know, Norma Ray, which is a semi-true story. At least it's based on a true story uh, about, you know, organizing a textile plant in, in the South. All right, and, you know, you watch that, and you go, oh, my gosh, the, the union's the answer to, you know, all the problems that these people have. All right, well, it's not Norma Ray time anymore. It is, of course, 2017. 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right, why did union organizing efforts fail? And is there a lesson to be drawn from this? 414-799-1620 is the number. Uh, BD is back at the studio lining up the calls. Let me give him a chance to get everything posted, and then we'll be back to talk about this. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 913. This is Jeff Wagner. We're broadcasting live from the Wisconsin State Fair. Stick around. It's 915. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ, broadcasting live from the Wisconsin State Fair. Big story number three. Um, Late last week, Canton, Mississippi. Big Nissan plant there. The, The UAW has been working for years to try to organize, get get the vote, get the workers to unionize. So, um, election was held last week, and overwhelmingly, like 62% of the workers said, "No, we don't want a union here." Now, the UAW says, "We're not giving up. We're not deterred. We're going to come back. We're going to try to get another election scheduled." But the question is, what part of no don't they understand? And more importantly, why is it? that you think that these workers, having it had a chance to decide whether to unionize or not, decided on the or not. 414-799-1620. Let's start with Dennis in Green Bay. Dennis, good morning. Hello. Hi, Dennis. Yeah, there's an interesting perspective. I don't know if it came up in the articles that you read, but one of the UAW tactics there now saying they're going to pursue is going to the French government, who has a more uh, unionized perspective. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the French government owns a part of this conglomerate of Renault and Nissan. To have them put pressure on the Nissan people here to accept the union. And with that in mind, it kind of brings up an interesting perspective of the union lost almost two to one, and they want to go to government and France <laughs> right. and help. So is it about the people, or is it about the union? Now, and I think that's a th- – thanks for the call, Dennis. Th- that's a very, very fair point here. This was – now, I, look, any time you have these elections and there's, well, there's unfair practice or whatever, but this is the reality is this has been going on for a couple of years, and I, I don't think that there's any of these people who voted who didn't understand what was involved here. I mean, see, here's what I think that the basic problem is, and this is where the failure of the UAW was. It was that they were unable to convince – the potential union members that there was enough value to this. And that's why I started off the discussion by talking about here you have this guy who who okay he I think he worked at a Shoney's restaurant before he got hired at this plant 14 years ago. He said, "Hey, I mean, I'm making a bunch of money. I make almost as much, you know, in my non-unionized position as the UAW workers make in Michigan." I went from one week of vacation to four weeks of vacation. I like what I'm doing. Let's talk to uh, Joseph in Racine. Joseph, you're on 620 WTMJ. How you doing? 
Real well, thank you. Okay, why did this? Why did the union vote fail? And why? And why won't the UAW take no for an answer? Well, I, I think the, the problem is that the, the, the people don't really realize how how union contract will benefit them. See, because when you got a contract, you got certain benefits. Okay, mm-hmm. say when you retire, you don't get a certain amount for the rest of your life, and then they they negotiate your insurance and all that. You can get free insurance. There's a whole lot of things that they don't talk about with a contract. When you got a contract, you you got certain benefits to come with. So people are looking at, well, I don't want to pay my fifty dollars a month for the union. Well, I, I know I know what I'm talking about because I was in the union, lost the union. When I was in the union, I, I paid like fifty dollars for insurance, and then when the union dispersed, I paid three hundred dollars a month for insurance. Mm-hmm. So that's what I'm trying to tell you. When I had a contract, I had insurance that they they negotiated the insurance. When I lost the union, they didn't negotiate the insurance. Well, well, so, Joseph, are you saying you think that these the the thousands of people at this plant who voted against the union that that they're essentially just stupid that they they didn't understand why they were saying no? Yes, they understand. They understand the benefit of a contract. Any, listen, anything you do, you negotiate. Mm-hmm. Everything you do in life, you negotiate. Just like when you go buy a car, you negotiate. The most powerful thing you got is negotiation. Well, it, it, it. I mean, thanks. Thanks for the call. I mean, Dennis, I, I. Thanks for the call. I appreciate the perspective, but I, at the same time, I, I'm not willing to say that the two thirds of the people who voted no were, were dumb. I mean, here, here's here's the truth. Like for for example, we don't, as a general rule, company I work for, we don't have a union. All right. Now, I do have a contract. I'm different than a lot of people. I do negotiate that type of thing, and there is a value to it. But you know what? If you work for a company that offers a pretty good benefit package. And, and that's what that's what these workers here were saying. They said, hey, look, we, we've got a 401K plan. All right, we're, we, you know, we, we get, he said, I get, this guy says, I get four weeks of vacation. I never had more than one week. Okay, these are the company benefits. And I think the argument was, I don't need a union negotiating for me. I am happy with the benefits that we have, and I am not convinced, and this is my guess as to why 62% of the voter, the, the workers said, no, not because they're too stupid to appreciate it, but rather because they just recognize that, hey, the, the added benefits, having a union, paying these dues in, it's not going to get me any materially th- any more than I have, and you know what, in some cases might make it worse. Now, I mean, I this see, to me, this is the challenge that unions have moving forward, and it's the challenge that unions have post-Act 10 in Wisconsin and all across the country. You have to convince your your potential members what the value is. What is it that you are going to bring to the table? And I understand the argument, well, okay, here, you know, you, you've got this negotiating power and you've got the contract. Well, okay, but at the same time, if you're happy with your working conditions, if you're saying, hey, I've got this 401K, this is pretty darn good. I'm better off now. I like the company. I think the company's been basically decent to me. I, I like the vacation package. Um, maybe I don't want somebody negotiating for me because then I kind of lose control. And maybe it'll be the deal that the union comes in and they start negotiating for this, and next thing I know, I'm down to two weeks of vacation. I mean, that's the concern I think they have. Chuck on the south side. Chuck, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Morning. See, I'm a retired union uh, employee. I'm a full 100% union employee. I believe mm-hmm. in the unions. I really do. And I, I don't know. I've read stories and I've uh, seen things on the television. And I don't know how much uh, uh, the politicians got into their commercials. I don't know how much the uh, 
company got into that. But see, if they got involved in it and they started putting their, their thing into it, how much did it influence the guys that were voting? You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? Uh, yeah, well, it, well, clearly, I mean, clearly the company fought these efforts at unionizing, but still, um, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I mean, obviously, these workers. Don't you think a particular employee, a guy that's been working there for 14 years, for example, knows whether he wants to be represented by a union or not? And I, I'm not anti-union, Chuck. I mean, people have their choice. But, I mean, are there reasons why maybe they chose not to go with the union? Well, you know, where I work, we I, right now, where I used to work, they had no contact now for almost three years. The company right. is huge. It makes millions of dollars. They don't want to sit down with their employees and talk. So... To think of what's going to happen down the line with this, this car factory, or you know, when they when they have a con- well, they don't they don't have they don't have contracts or nothing, right? Correct? No, so right. They do not. They don't have contracts, right? Right. Right. So you don't know if they're if they're going to get a raise in a year, or two years, or not, or what's going to happen with these guys. I mean, yeah, and, I, and then the guy said about health insurance. I kind of like to know what their health insurance are, even when they retire. What kind of health insurance? Did I get good insurance when I retired? Mm-hmm. But I guess so, I mean, thanks. Oh no, I, I, Chuck. Thanks. I understand what you're saying, but the, at the same time, um, see, there's all sorts of people. The vast majority of people in this country are not represented by unions. I mean, the vast majority of people are at will employees. They 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 work at places. They can leave. There's not a contract. There's and the company can change the different policies that they have. That covers the vast majority of people. And I think the vast majority of people are satisfied with. The, the benefit packages that they have. They don't feel that, gee, the company's going to screw me over or, or more importantly, perhaps, that I need a union to protect me. Now, maybe some people do. Um, my, my, my brother-in-law worked worked at a union shop for his entire career before he retired, and, and he was just like you, Chuck. He was a big advocate for that. You know, he thought that, you know, you really needed that to protect him, and he was very happy, and I, I respect that as well. But I guess here, here's the bigger picture. I reject this idea that just because these voters said no, that means that they're stupid. I think what it means is that the union was unable to convince these workers that they would have a materially better deal under them than they were getting from the management already. And, and yes, you know, you're right. You can, you know, theoretically, I guess they can come in and they can change the nature of the retirement plans or they can change the vacation policy. But at the same time, even if you've negotiated a contract, all right, that that's only going to be the case. The vacation policy is only going to be in place for, I don't know, the, the term of what that contract is. And I think what you're seeing is, number one, a lot of people are saying, we, we want to know what's in it for us. You know, what is the value to us? And you do say, well, you get somebody to negotiate for you. But, right, at the same time, keep in mind, that means then you give up some individual rights. Then you go and you're part of, of this, this group. You're part of this collective that's there. I don't know how this auto plant, you know, handles wages. Okay, I mean, I, I don't. But if you're part of the overall collective, you're part of the union, well, okay, you're going to be paid according to the wage scale that the union has. Well, maybe there's some people who say, you know, I, I don't necessarily want want that. I mean, I, I want to be able to negotiate my own deal, or I want to be able to reward it with a raise or whatever. But it's just, here's the problem. UAW's got to figure out, and unions in general have to figure out how they can be relevant to people moving forward in 2017, or else union membership is going to continue to drop. It's 925. This is Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. It's 
928, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ, broadcasting live from the State Fair. It is a Chamber of Commerce day out here. Stop by and say hi. Will Republicans in D.C. ever try to resurrect their own health care legislation again? How damaging is the Russia investigation when it comes to the president's work with Congress? John McCure gets the answer to those questions when he is joined by Senator Ron Johnson at 320, live from the State Fair. Hey, um, at 11.08, I'm going to be joined by the Secretary of the State Department of Children and Families, Eloise Anderson. We're going to be talking about, well, different types of reform and what Foxconn might mean for trying to help people in this community get out of poverty. It's a part of the discussion and a part of the Foxconn debate, which I, I really haven't seen enough of. All right, PG-13 warning, very quickly. Um, I just there, there, There's some stories that are just mind-boggling to me. Fox News, um, Eric Bowling, who is one of their kind of rising stars, he was a former commodities trader, then he went to work for CNBC, then he's on the Fox Business Network, um, and then he's part of this late afternoon roundtable show, The Five. Um, he's in this late afternoon slot. He has now been suspended um, as the nest- network investigates you know, examples of misconduct. Um, the reports are that there was a period of time a few years ago, and, and he denies them through his lawyer, so I don't know if it's true or not, but where he apparently was taking pictures of his genitalia and sending them to former and current female colleagues at the company. Now, again, I just, it's one of these things where, see, you just, there's certain things that I wouldn't do, but I understand. And then there's other stuff that I just flat out don't understand. And this this fits into that kind of category. I mean, it's why do you think that it would be a good idea to pull an Anthony Weiner to take photographs of your junk and then send them out to your coworkers? I mean, really? What do you think what good thing do you think is going to come of this particular action? Now, again, he denies it through his attorneys. Um, I don't know if it is true or not, but right now he has been suspended pending an investigation. But if he did this, it's going to be the third guy um, in the last couple months who's gotten in trouble with investigations into stuff like this at Fox News. But Regardless, it's the basic thing. I didn't understand why Anthony Weiner thought it was a good idea to do this um, when he was in Congress and afterwards. And I don't understand why anybody would think it would be a good idea to do it. I mean, my goodness, I mean, maybe it's a midlife crisis. If so, I'm glad my midlife crisis is that I can't hit my three wood quite as far. All right, we're broadcasting live from the Wisconsin State Fair. When we come back, the O.J. Simpson Bronco back in the news. I'll tell you about it. We'll discuss. It's 9.36. This is Jeff Wagner broadcasting once again live from the Wisconsin State Fair. How does a company's mission affect the way in which they attract and keep top talent? Rich Mewson, who is the CEO of Badger Meter, great guy, gives his philosophy on this when he joins the folks at Milwaukee in the latest edition of the Intersection of People and Place podcast. It's up now online at WTMJ.com and on the WTMJ mobile app. Check it out when you're at the podcast page. You can also download the podcast of this show. I know lots of people do it, and I appreciate it. All right. Um, now for something completely different. I admit, and I, I've said this before i'm a, a fan of i'm a fan of junk tv i, I and by junk tv i mean you know if it's on i will watch it 
but I, I go through periods, and I, I kind of burn out on stuff, but, but I, I love these so-called reality TV shows, and I put that in quotation marks, because I'm not sure how real they are, but, but um, I was trying to explain this to someone the other night as to why I like the reality TV shows. And it was kind of like, and she said, well, well, give me an example. What are some of you talking about? I said, well, like Swamp People. Now, Swamp People focuses on a bunch of people during August, which is when you can go out and hunt hunt alligators legally in the Louisiana Bayou. And the way you do this is you go and you hang like dead chickens, you know, up on a hook, and then alligators come and they eat them, uh, the chickens, and they they get caught on the hook. And then you go back and you, you wrestle them into a boat. Now, I mean, my friend was saying, okay, well, how? what is it that appeals to you? And I said, well, look, it's kind of like regardless of how bad a day that you've had, you know, you're not on a boat in the bayou trying to wrestle, you know, a 60-pound or a couple hundred-pound alligator into a boat. You know, it, it kind of makes you feel good about your life. So, I mean, I, I watch these different shows. Sometimes I, I like Gold Rush, which is one about a bunch of people, you know, trying to, you know, mine gold in the Yukon. It's just – and it's – a deadliest catch that's a big one that's out there you know people going out and trying to be in the Bering Sea in the middle of January trying to catch crab you know and it's kind of like uh, all right because again you could have a bad day at work but at least I, I'm not on some crab boat in the Bering Sea you know being buffeted about by giant waves when it's you know 15 degrees I mean those those are the things that so you kind of watch it but I'm, I'm sort of fascinated by it I admit it one of the uh, other shows that I like, the reality TV genre, is on the History Channel, Pawn Stars. It's been on forever. It's set in, a, if you've ever been there, it's a dumpy pawn shop in, in Las Vegas. But the idea is it's on the History Channel, so people come in and they want to pawn stuff, and then the guys go out and they look at it and they give them values. And all. It, it, it just it is kind of interesting and sort of addictive in the way that popcorn is addictive. You know, you kind of watch it. In any event, the, the reason I, I go through this is because coming up a week from tonight on Pawn Stars, apparently um, what happens is the guy that owns the O.J. Simpson Slow Speed Chase Bronco um, brings it into the pawn shop and tries to pawn it, you know, with the idea of, you know, would they buy it to resell it? Now, I don't know how that all turned out, but it, it led to this kind of interesting discussion. Now, there are there are things in your lifetime that you will remember where you are when they occurred. I've said this before. If you are of a certain age, if you were alive when Pearl Harbor occurred, you undoubtedly remember that. I was a very young kid when President Kennedy was assassinated, but I was in first grade. I remember, you know, being in I remember being in the classroom, they came in and they announced it. I mean, I remember that weekend even though I was very young. We will all, or at least most of us, will will remember where we were on September 11th, 2001. It is interesting because boy, time sure flies. I mean, it's been 15 years. So there are a number of people who were not alive. That's why one of the things every every September 11th we, we go back and we do a memorial show where people talk about what they remember. Because you know, right now there is there is a generation of people who weren't born when that occurred. But but those are one of those are some of the things that if you were alive when it happened, you remember. For many people, and this is not in the same scope as the assassination of President Kennedy or certainly the, the terrorist attack on September 11, 2001. But many of us, when I say O.J. Simpson's slow-speed Bronco chase, can I see a show of hands? Do people remember where they were when, when that was occurred? I, I mean, I, it was um, 1994. 
June 17th of 1994. And I mean, I can remember that like it was yesterday. I remember who I was with. I remember where we were. As it just kind of played out on TV, you know, O.J. Simpson, um, he was being driven in this 1993 white Bronco by his pal, um, um, A.C. Cowlings, and they're, they're driving. It's the slow speed chase. They're on the phone. I've got O.J. Simpson with him. we got a gun, all those types of things. Um, you know, interestingly enough, people remember that. Well, here's what happened to that, that car. There's, there's a guy who apparently bought the Bronco from the guy that was driving it during the chase for $75,000 and kept it in his basement um, for a decade. They brought it out of the basement, and they displayed it at a Las Vegas casino in 2003. In 2004, it was put back into storage, and apparently the Bronco has been in storage since 2004. And now um, the guy is apparently looking to sell it, so he takes it to this pawn shop, and it's going to be again on the show a week from Monday. I don't know how the whole thing turns out. You'll have to watch it. But it, it led to this really interesting discussion about would you have any interest now, I understand there's all sorts of vehicles and there's all sorts of car collectors out there, but this is a different kind of car. So let's tee this up. I am legitimately curious. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. Would you be interested in owning the O.J. Simpson Bronco? I mean, again, let's let's let, let's put aside, I mean, I don't know how much money that you would have to pay for it. Couple of people at State Fair just saying absolutely not. Would you have any interest in the world in owning the O.J. Simpson Bronco? I mean, now there's there's this whole thing of sports. Mem- there's this whole thing with memorabilia. You know, people. I was watching this thing on HBO the other night about you know the, the late Debbie Reynolds. How you know she she collected all this Hollywood memorabilia and she was sending it off at, at an auction and things like that. You know what I mean? And the, you had Judy Garland, the, the the slippers she wore from the, um, the the slippers that she wore when she did the Wizard of Oz. And they had like all the costumes that the guys did in the Rat Pack when they were in Ocean's Eleven. So there is this huge huge interest in historical stuff. Would you be interested in owning the O.J. Bronco? I will give you my answer, and we will discuss this. If you're on the line, please hold on. Uh, let me get uh, give a quick break so BD can line up the calls. We'll be back in just a minute. Um, it is 9.43. Would you be interested in not having the Bronco? And, I'm, and I understand. I'm, I'm kind of putting price. I mean, assuming the price was something reasonable and in your price range, would you be interested in owning that Bronco? We discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 9.43. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. It's 947, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. It's time to schedule watch and scoreboard watch in Major League Baseball. Is it possible the Brewers haven't faced their toughest stretch yet? Greg Matzik examines the rest of their August slate during Sports Central at 6.07. That's live from the Wisconsin State Fair, sponsored by Pella Windows and Doors of Wisconsin. Coming up in 10 minutes. Tammy Baldwin is trying to block a qualified conservative judge from going onto the bench. She can't be allowed to get away with it. I'll explain it. But right now, um, on, on Pawn Stars, which is on the History Channel, one of the shows I like, apparently a week from tonight, the, the guy who owns the O.J. Simpson Bronco comes in and tries to pawn this. And so I, my guess is they don't buy it. Don't, don't know for sure, but my guess is they don't buy it. Would you have any interest in owning that car? 414-799-1620. Let's see, on our text line, Dick texts, O.J. Simpson Bronco, no. 
not even if you gave it to me. I'd rather eat bees than owning the OJ Bronco. Let's start with Robert in Berlin. Robert, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Morning. Good to talk to you. So, nice to talk Anyway, I have a little different perspective. I might be a little tainted by what happened. We lived in L.A. at that time, and we were watching it on the news. And I'm like, i got to get out of here because we are kind of watching, watching, watching. I go, i got to get to work. I couldn't get to work on time because they didn't just close all the off-ramps. They closed all the on-ramps also to that freeway. So I showed up an hour and a half late to work because of OJ. Now, I remember Broncos, and there were money pits back then, those versions. And would I have an interest in it? No way. What about the historical significance? I mean, this is, this is a car that's involved in one of the most notorious chases, so-called chases, in American history. Not, not even for the historical okay. impact, huh? Yeah, if, this is a little morbid, but I still wouldn't buy it. If maybe he had killed himself in it, that'd be a different story. I don't say, I don't I don't want it right. to, but then I could see the value in it. But otherwise, it's just a car somebody drove in. Uh, right. Now, thanks for the call. I appreciate it. Now, see, that, that's what I love about doing this job. And we were talking about the O.J. Simpson. The first caller out of the box, not only does he remember that slow-speed chase like I do, but he wasn't able to get to work because of the slow-speed chase. Boy, that would have that would have really ticked me off as well. I mean, it was just it was morbidly fascinating. Um, I, By the way, I, I agree. This is every once in a while. I mean, I don't care what the value of this is. Every once in a while, I, I think you have to stand up and, and say things on principle. For example, if O.J. Simpson, when he is released on parole, if he decides to go back and make the autograph circuit, shame on anybody. Shame on anybody who shows up wherever he is and gives this guy a dime for his autograph. Now, in this case, the, the money wouldn't be going to O.J. Simpson. I mean, this is somebody else who bought it. But there, there's just some stuff I have no interest in at all. And I love history, and I'm a collector, but this wouldn't be it. Mike on the Northwest Side. Mike, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Hey, uh, good morning, Jeff. I would not buy it at all. I remember exactly what you're talking about. Well, first of all, the pawn shop is like on the strip, but in nowhere land. It's like in <laughs> right. that part of the strip. Yep. And uh, the other thing, we're at uh, my wife's aunt's restaurant. She's still in the friendly inn on Good Hope Road, and we were oh, at sure. the bar after dinner, and we were watching a slow-paced chase or whatever, which is like the weirdest car chase I've ever seen in my life. Right. And uh, I have absolutely no intention of buying that car. <laughs> give it to OJ when he gets out of prison, you know? Not give it to him, <laughs> sell it back to him. Yeah, well, th- thanks for calling. Yeah, I, my, I, well, I, I mean, I just see there again. There, there's some items of American history that I admit I would be fascinated by, and and maybe you know I wouldn't want to spend a whole bunch of money to to collect them. But there are also certain things that just have no appeal to me at all. I mean, again, I remember where I was too. This was 1994. It was June of 1994. I was running for statewide office. I was out doing campaign stuff with. Um, uh, my my dear friend Molly Caranda, who was my campaign scheduler, and we it was like the end of the day, and we were in this we were at a, having a sandwich and a beer. At least I, I don't think she drank. I was having a sandwich and a beer. She was having a sandwich, and we were in this place in Waukesha, and th- th- this is what was on TV, and it was just incredibly, incredibly fascinating. Um, so I was interested, but would I would I do any? Do I have any interest at all in anything that? I don't know, reminds us of the fact that you have a guy who, at least in my opinion, got away with murder. Absolutely not. John in Greenfield. John, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Good morning, Jeff. Um, I remember exactly where I was also, but uh, the thing that I I remember the most 
about the whole thing was after the Packers in 1995, I believe it was, they got beat by uh, the uh, Denver Broncos. And uh, the joke was, is uh, and, and John Elway just, just ran them right on down, but the joke was, is what does the L.A. police and the Green Bay Packers have in common? And the answer was, is they both got beat by an old, <laughs> slow, white Bronco. <laughs> Thanks for the call, John. Thanks for the call. Yeah, yeah. It's just, I, I it was just, it, that's an amazing part of American history. There, there's no question about it. But yeah, I see. I'm with all the callers here, and I, I my guess is they, they don't buy it on Pawn Stars, or else I think maybe we would have heard about that otherwise. But as far as I'm concerned, there, you take that particular vehicle, you put it back in storage, and you just keep it there forever. Because candidly, I understand OJ is getting out, and that's that's fine. That's the decision decision the system has made, but. I think it's a guy who got away with murder, and I don't want anything associated with him. All right, coming up in less than three minutes, U.S. Senator Tammy Baldwin is trying to stop a qualified judge from taking his seat. She needs to be stopped in her efforts. I'll explain why. Stick around. 953, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. It's 955, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Tammy Baldwin has to be stopped. Um, the, there is... Federal judges, there's the federal, regular federal judges, the district judges. Then there are court of appeals judges. In, in the case of Wisconsin, um, all Wisconsin federal cases are heard by the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals, which is the Court of Appeals judges, second highest court in the land, right below the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, traditionally, Wisconsin has had two judges on the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals. Seventh Circuit hears cases out of Illinois, Indiana, and um Illinois, let me see, Illinois and um, Indiana and Wisconsin. Um, There has been a vacancy. It is the longest standing vacancy of any appellate court in the country. Um, Former federal judge Terry Evans, I used to practice in front of Judge Evans back when I was a prosecutor. He was, first of all, a district judge, then he was elevated to the Seventh Circuit. He died suddenly seven years ago. That is traditionally the Wisconsin spot. That has been open. That has been vacant for seven years. All right. Now you have Republicans that control the Senate, and you have a Republican president. Um, On Friday, President Trump announced that he would be nominating Mike Brennan to take this spot that has been vacant for seven years. Mike Brennan, I have known him for years and years. He is an inspired choice. He was in private practice. He was an assistant district attorney. He served a long term on the um, on, on the Milwaukee County Circuit bench. You, he's incredibly, incredibly qualified. You know, if you go through this checklist, former prosecutor, private practice experience, was on the circuit court bench. He, he's from Central Casting. He's also conservative, which you would expect that President Trump would be nominating a conservative jurist. Well, the way it works in Wisconsin is the two U.S. Senators, Tammy Baldwin and Ron Johnson, they have a nominating commission. They each have three members. And the deal is you're supposed to have five of the six votes to get it out. Tammy Baldwin does not want a conservative taking the bench. So apparently uh, Judge Brennan got all three all three of Ron Johnson's votes and only one of the three nominees to this commission for Tammy Baldwin. Tammy Baldwin's commission, it is my opinion, will not approve anybody Anybody nominated by President Trump, this is an attempt to obstruct. This job has been vacant for seven years. And so now Tammy Baldwin is in the paper over the weekend talking about how Trump ignored a bipartisan panel. No, what's going on, 
What's going on here is Tammy Baldwin is trying to stop a conservative judge from taking a vacancy that has been there for seven years. Now, Senate rules allow the senator from a home state to kind of block this by this thing they call a blue slip. The Senate is looking at changing its rules to stop this because otherwise this position will be vacant, I guarantee you, for another two or three years because Tammy Baldwin isn't going to approve anybody that Donald Trump would nominate or that Ron Johnson would approve of. I guarantee you that. This is an effort to stop and stonewall an incredibly qualified conservative judge from taking the bench. Mike Brennan is amazingly qualified. He is the type of guy that belongs on the bench. It is an inspired choice choice for the Court of Appeals, and it is time for the president and for Senator Johnson to say that they are not going to allow Tammy, just say no, Baldwin, to block this. Will they do it? I think they might. I think they just might say, we're going to put Brennan on the bench regardless, and that's what they should do. All right. It's 9.59. When we come back, lots of stuff. Sanctuary cities. Do we need to move to get jobs? And should we start soaking the rich to pay for buses and trolleys? Stick around. It's 9.59. This is Jeff Wagner. It's 10.08. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. We're broadcasting live from the Wisconsin State Fair. We have a particularly attractive crowd gathered out here this afternoon, this morning. No question about it. Um, It's actually kind of a Chamber of Commerce day. I I freely acknowledge Thursday um, we had the heavy rains that kind of came through. Friday... It felt like a late, or at least an early November day. I mean, I was trying to explain it to somebody. I said, you know, I've been doing the radio show out here for going on 20 years. This might be the 20th season. And I never remember a day that was that cold. It was in the mid to upper 50s. But then you had this 20-mile-an-hour wind kind of out of the northwest. And and literally, I mean, people people were walking around in sweatshirts and jackets. And it was it was cold. Good weekend, and of course today looks like a Chamber of Commerce day, and it looks like the weather is going to be really good for the balance of the fair. Um, that is something very interesting. All right, I, I was I want to kind of back into this story. My dad worked for an insurance company, one of these national insurance companies that no longer exists. But um, he was originally from Baltimore, Maryland. My mom was from like the Annapolis area, and um, my dad went to work for this insurance company out of Baltimore. And then um, he got, I was born in Baltimore, he got transferred, we moved to Pittsburgh. So we lived in Pittsburgh for a couple years. Then he got transferred back to Baltimore. We lived in Baltimore for a couple years. And then he got brought to the home office, was in Milwaukee, and he got brought to the home office. And we moved here when I was like 10 years old, 1967. So I've I've lived here ever since. Um, but, But that was just kind of the way things were back then. You know, you worked for these big companies, and you just got transferred around. And and we were, it, you didn't really think anything of it. It was like, okay, this is this is the next step. You keep getting promoted. This is what you do, and you're going to move. We were very, very mobile, and, and that wasn't an unusual thing. Lots of people were very, very mobile. You you moved to where your job took you. You moved to where the job was. Now, that has changed over the years. One of the things that, of course, we're debating right now with this whole Foxconn situation, and I mean, I, I, this, this is, I've argued this, and we'll continue to argue this, this is a great opportunity. I think this is a game changer for Wisconsin. But here's, here is one of the concerns. It is where are we going to get the people 
that are going to fill these jobs. UW-Madison is already saying, well, if you want us to turn out you know, people that can take these jobs, you're going to have to give us more money. It, isn't it interesting that you know, when it comes to the UW system, it's always, how can we get more money? Give us more money. Give us more money. But regardless, the, one of the issues is, where are you going to get a qualified workforce? I remember when they first made the Foxconn announcement, you, you have some of the backbenchers like Wen Moore, who's the congressman for the area to the north of where Foxconn is going to be located, and she's like, well, I'm a little bit skeptical of this. Well, instead of being skeptical about it, Gwen Moore should have attended the announcement. She should have been jumping up and down, and she should have been trying to figure out, gee, I represent a district that has at least some areas that have some of the higher unemployment rates in the country. How can I figure out a way to get my constituents trained to take jobs um, at, at Foxconn? I mean, wouldn't you think that that would be the response that a responsible congresswoman would have? Well, that wasn't how Gwen Moore approached this. But but one of the issues is going to be, where are the people going to come from? Now, hopefully, hopefully the, the vast majority of jobs, whether it's 3,000 or 5,000 or 10,000 or 13,000, hopefully the vast majority of jobs are going to come from people in Wisconsin who are looking for work. You know, that's that's what you want to see. But at the same time, I, I understand what's, what is going to happen. It's sometimes it's, it's going to be, in one respect, it's going to be some people who are looking for work. It's also going to be people who do similar sorts of jobs at other companies who are they're going to view Foxconn as a better opportunity. So they're going to leave their jobs, and they're going to go to work for Foxconn, creating vacancies. All right, and I'm fully cognizant of the fact that there might not be, short-term, enough qualified people floating around southeastern Wisconsin to either fill the jobs at Foxconn or to fill the jobs at the other companies that are created when people leave those companies to go work at Foxconn. So, I mean, I think that there's you've got that whole thing that, that's going on. So where are the people going to come from? And one of the obvious answers is that you are going to have people perhaps from out of state. And I'm not just talking about flatlanders from Illinois who try to strive over the border. I'm talking about people who may be willing to relocate in order to take the, the jobs. You saw this play out in, in North Dakota over the last couple of years when you had the whole fracking thing. You know, fracking is where you, you go in and you, you extract, you know, gasoline from from the shale and things like that. Well, you saw, I mean, just North Dakota, people flocking to North Dakota from all over the country because they were pursuing these different jobs, these different opportunities. And I guess I'm thinking that Foxconn, you know, might provide an opportunity for people who might have the skills, but where they live now don't have the jobs to want to come and travel to and relocate to Wisconsin. Now, I bring this up because there was a really interesting story that the president did. President Trump did an interview with the Wall Street Journal, and they were talking about, you know, the, the pockets of unemployment. Unemployment is at historically low levels nowadays. But there are still pockets across the country where you have people who, who just still can't find jobs. And one of the things that the president said is that, look, if for people who can't find work, what we're going to need to do is, is Americans have to start moving. And 
he's on to something. Americans aren't packing up and moving like they used to. Um, Washington Post was writing about this. Mobility is at an all-time low, according to the census. About 10% of Americans moved in the past year. That's way down from the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, when more than 20% of the nation was on the go. And apparently what's going on, and one of the things they're finding, is that workers, one of the problems you have with matching skills to workers is you have a lot of skilled workers who, for whatever reasons, aren't willing to relocate. And that that's one of the reasons why perhaps you don't have the economy growing as fast as some people think it should. All right, 414-799-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. There are all sorts of values to staying put. I mean, I, I just this is home for me. This is I, I'm 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 dug in. That that's just the reality. And regardless of where life might take me, I'm, I'm always going to be living here. Now, that's not to say that maybe if I can figure out a way to swing it, sometime you won't have another place somewhere warm to hang out for a few months. But but this is this is home. Don't want to leave. At the same time, you know, twenty if I was 25 or 30 years younger. And there was an opportunity in whatever industry I wanted to pursue, whether it was radio or whether it was law or whatever. I mean, I think I would have been willing to say, as much as I love this here, I, as much as I love the area, I, I'm willing, I'd be willing to relocate. I'm willing to chase the job. 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Are we too static? Do we need to be more willing to relocate? in order to go for the jobs. Would you be willing to relocate if, hey, this is something, you know, you whatever, whatever your profession is, whatever your job is, and all of a sudden there's this opportunity, and the opportunity is halfway across the country, you know, would you be willing to pursue it? And is that going to be part of the legacy of Foxconn? Maybe people who have skills for these jobs saying, hey, there's this opportunity in southeastern Wisconsin, I'm going for it. President Trump says, um, if we really want to get the economy growing, part of it is that people are going to have to start being willing to move. Agree, disagree. What do you think? 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. We are back to discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 1017. We're broadcasting live from the Wisconsin State Fair. The appointment. It's 1019, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. The border war resumes tonight as the Brewers battle the Twins in Minneapolis. Jeff and Lane are live from Target Field with pregame coverage at 635 here on WTMJ, sponsored by Catholic Financial Life. Yeah, a week from Friday, John McCure, the We Love Wisconsin Tour. It's going to be at this place called The Great Outdoors in Kewaskum. Happens to be, I was there yesterday. Actually, I was there yesterday afternoon having lunch there. Great place. Um, I'm going to try to stop by myself when they're there. At the time, they had a special thing on the menu yesterday, and it's not going to be on a week from now, but it was it was a, it was like a corn dog, this giant corn dog. I swear, the corn dog was as big as your head. A guy at the end of the bar ordered it, and I was kind of saying, you can eat the whole thing, and he did. So that's the We Love Wisconsin Tour coming up in a week from Friday. They're going to be at the Great Outdoors in Kewaskum. Okay, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage uh Talk and text line during the break. My producer BD, who also works somewhere else, was saying, "Hey, you know, at, at his company, which is a national company, the other place he works, said they are they like to promote from within.
in. They always are advertising opportunities that would require people moving. So it's a national company. They'd like to promote from within, and so they say, okay, there's a job opening in you know, fill-in-the-blank where Cincinnati. I'm just picking that out of, that, out of a hat. Um, and he said it's amazing. People won't do that. People won't take advantage of it. President Trump is saying you know, people need to be willing to relocate if you're really going to get the economy rolling. 414-799-1620. Al in Fond du Lac. Al, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for taking my call. Yes, sir. Hey, I watched Mike Forche yesterday morning, and he had a state representative there that sat in the meeting with Foxconn. And first of all, the cost of living in Racine, Kenosha, is kind of expensive, okay? Okay. Second of, second of all, there are no guarantees of $20 an hour for everybody. They said, she said when you read the fine print, it doesn't guarantee anything. It's even far as insurance goes. Because they have no idea what they're going to offer these people, if they have to start spending three or four hundred dollars a month for insurance for their family, making ten to thirteen dollars an hour, who would want to move there? So you don't think the jobs are going to be good enough if you if you've got somebody who's in the tech field in upstate New York can't find a job, has been unemployed for the last two years or grossly underemployed, you don't think that it's going to be attractive enough to get him to perhaps move to do something? Well, I think you would, but I don't think $20 an hour is enough for the cost of living in that area. That's the point mm-hmm. of getting at it. And then the state representative said there's no guarantees in $20 an hour for everybody. It's only for a certain few individuals that have the qualifications for the jobs. Yeah, they're talking about right. And th- thanks for the call, Al. I guess I guess we're we're talking around each other. I mean, I, I think, uh, look, this Foxconn thing is going to happen, and I understand that there's people who, for whatever reasons, want to want to throw cold water on it. Um, but 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 it's going to happen. But I guess the, my my bigger point is is the larger one with regard to people being willing to relocate. Um, you know, you saw that in in years past. That's why I started this topic by by talking about the story. I remember my dad. Back in the day, back in the day, you know, you, you got, went to work for a company, and then you moved around. That was just the idea. We were more mobile as a society. You went to where the jobs were. You're working for a company. Okay, the company promotes you. Yeah, you take the promotion. You move from Baltimore to Milwaukee or, or whatever. You, you do those type of things. Now, we have seen this play out, again, with kind of like the fracking. Who wants to go to North Dakota? No offense if you're from North Dakota, but I've been there. But you have people who are saying, okay, these are where the jobs are. We're going to go. We're going to pursue this. I, I do think I, I do think more people need to be willing to be more mobile. Now, I have I have some acquaintances who's, um, because of, of what they or their spouses do, it's really kind of specialized and, um, you know, candidly, you know, they, they've moved all over the country or in a situation where, you know, one spouse is in one state and another spouse is, you know, halfway across the country because they had to go to where the job is. Uh, in general, I think there's a reluctance to do it, but don't we have to? Randy and Racine. Randy, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Howdy. Hi, well, Randy. A, a couple of examples I've had in my life. Uh, when I worked for Home Depot, there'd be opportunities with new stores opening. Or when I worked at Amazon currently, uh, there's opportunities again with uh, new fulfillment centers opening. Right. But both cases, I have a house here in Racine, and I'm, I'm questioning whether I'd be able to sell it quick enough to take advantage of that. I don't believe so. And so I more or less sit and stay put. Uh, for a while, I was out of work. And there was opportunities in northwestern uh, 
Warren County up around Brown Deer, etc. But again, I'm looking at, well, do I, you know, do I really want to drive an hour and a half to go to work and then come back again? I've done that before and fallen asleep on the road. Right. So I stay put. You know, just as an example of why not moving. Well, right. I mean, I guess how, how about a situation was, let's assume that you were, you, you had a particular skill. A uh, particular skill set, you'd been unemployed or underemployed, you hadn't been able to find a job in your chosen area for like a year, year and a half, and you find out, hey, they're, they're hiring down in Nashville, Tennessee. Under a circumstance like that, do you think you'd consider putting your house up? Well, I mean, obviously, first you have to go interview, get the job. But assuming you've got that job, do you think in that case you'd go through the trouble of selling your house? Well, for a long time, it was actually a case where the housing market was uh, non-existent, and I would be, you know, basically losing everything that I had in the house. Right now, I might. The other problem is, I hit retirement age uh, yeah. four years ago, yeah. and I don't think anybody's going to hire me. Right. For right. Yeah, right, Randy. And thanks for call. I, right, I guess in your particular situation, I, mean, I, I understand if you're if, if you're in your mid to upper sixties and you've lived here all your life. I, I understand why in that case you wouldn't you wouldn't be interested in relocating, you know, halfway across the country to take a job. I mean, I, I get that, but I, I guess what what I think the president's talking about and what the economists are talking about is, you know, l- let's say again you've got somebody in their thirties. Um, who has a particular skill or a training in a particular area, and there's no jobs like that in the area where they're working. You know, there is a reluctance nowadays that was not present maybe 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago for somebody to say, okay, I'm going to pick up and I'm going to move across the country to pursue this job. Tim in Madison. Tim, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. You know, I my, my dad... When he switched jobs, we traveled and we moved with them, kind of kind of the story you're talking about. And what I've seen now, I'm, I'm 37 now, as I see a lot of people that are going to change company or change industry instead of just because so whether the, the family roots that they put down, I mean, the countless amount of people that rely on family and friends, even for mm-hmm. daycare of their kids and things like that, that the, the desire to move up within companies isn't necessarily – what it was 30 years ago because there's so much opportunity in, in so many different industries. I mean, 30 years ago, you had some really core businesses that people got involved in and built careers in. And I mean, we've talked time and time again about how nowadays people don't stay at a company for more than five to right. seven years because they can benefit financially more by using the skills they learn in one and jump into the next. Right. So the idea know. being that the idea in your mind being the place, location, quality of life more important than the job right I, I i think there's starting to be more of a balance i think you know you said it right there quality of life you know it's not something you really think about in your early 20s because you don't tie necessarily your professional life to your quality of life but i think as you get into your 30s and 40s start families and put down roots those are things you really start to think about when you when you do a job switch you know it used to be well what's my salary going to be now it's well, what's my salary? What's my health insurance? What's my four hundred one k look like? You know, it's 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 so much more of a, a total package nowadays than just a just a base salary number. No, right, and, and Tim, thanks for the call. And again, I, I'm not judging whether it's right or wrong. That, that, that's not the point of this topic. It, it is, the, I guess, the point is the the observation that you have. There are jobs in certain parts of the country. I believe Foxconn is going to be a success. I believe it is going to create jobs. 
I believe it creates opportunities, and I candidly, at least you know, in the beginning, I'm wondering whether there's going to be enough qualified people in southeastern Wisconsin or within easy driving distance to, to take those jobs. But So the, the jobs will be filled. So then I wonder, are there going to be people in upstate New York? Are there going to be people in, you know, wherever, I am somewhere in Davenport, Iowa, to pick a place? Are they going to be willing to relocate to chase the jobs? And, and I'm not sure what the answer to that is. Fifteen years ago, 20 years ago, the answer would have been yes. It's 1029. This is Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Ten thirty-six. Jeff Wagner, six twenty. WTMJ. The border war resumes this evening as the as the Brewers battle the Twins in Minneapolis. Jeff and Lane are live from Target Field with pregame coverage. Six thirty-five here on WTMJ, sponsored by Catholic Financial Life. Coming up in about a half hour, I'm going to be joined at the Wisconsin State Fair by the Secretary of Department of Children and Families, Eloise Anderson, who is. Um, well, uh, a conservative voice leading a fight against poverty. She's a very, very interesting woman. We're going to be talking about a number of initiatives and uh, what's going on with the opioid epidemic, what Foxconn might mean to families, what W-2 looks like with the Wisconsin economy doing so very well, all sorts of things. That's coming up in about a half hour or so. Everybody knows the concept of sanctuary cities by now, uh, and, and it's sort of an an ambiguous term you have a number of cities that decide they want to pander to a certain group of their constituents so they declare themselves sanctuary cities essentially a sanctuary city says we are not going to cooperate with federal officials when it comes to allowing them or making it easier for them to arrest or detain people who are illegally in this country. Now, let's just stop for that. Can you can you imagine you have people who are illegally in the country in violation of federal law, and you have some cities um, through their common councils or their mayors who decide we are not going to cooperate with the federal government in enforcing its federal laws. Well, what's happened now is the Trump administration and through the Department of Justice has said enough is enough. And, and here's the deal. Just like, for, for example, for driving, each state, and I've told this story before, each state sets its own uh, legal age for drinking. Wisconsin, if it wanted, could say the legal drinking age in Wisconsin is 18. But the deal is, if you do that, you would give up all federal highway funds because the federal government says, look, you got to have a 21-year-old drinking age to qualify for federal highway funds. If you, Wisconsin, make it 18 or 19 or something that you think might be more rational, doesn't matter, you're going to lose all this money. So it's that power of the purse. That's why Wisconsin complies. All right, so what, what the Justice Department, this is Jeff Sessions, is doing, is they're saying, look, we have all these federal law enforcement grants that are going to be awarded just like federal highway money, that go for law enforcement purposes. But we're not going to be giving it to sanctuary cities. They say, now here's, here's what you have to do. Um, you know, there, there are certain conditions. If your city um, bars, bars 
your local police department from sharing immigration status information with us. So in other words, you come into contact, you arrest somebody, um, you stop somebody, turns out they're in this country illegally. If you have a policy of saying, all right, you're not going to be able to share that information with the federal government, you're not going to be getting this grant money. If you have a policy that denies our law enforcement, this would be federal law enforcement people, unlimited access to police stations and law enforcement facilities so we can interrogate arrestees. You're not going to get that money. So in other words, if you arrest somebody for something and you say, all right, um, immigration wants to interview you, but we're not going to allow that to happen. Well, you don't get the money. And then um, the other thing that they are saying will happen is that um, there is a requirement right now that if you have somebody who has been arrested who is in this country illegally, what you have is you have to give the feds 48 hours notice um, before the person is going to be released. So the idea is what happens is the customs people, for example, or, or immigration, they find out that somebody has been arrested. They're in this country illegally. What they do is they put what's called a detainer on them. They say, all right, if, if this person is going to get released, notify us. Um, and we will come and we will pick them up, and then we'll, we'll, or at least we'll decide whether to pick them up, and we'll start our own proceedings, right? So what the Department of Justice is saying is, you know, you've got to give us 48 hours notice. This has been one of the most controversial things because you have people who've been arrested who are in this country illegally, and for reasons of political correctness, the local agency decides we're going to release them. We're not going to give immigration a chance to scoop them up. And then the person goes out and rapes somebody or kills somebody. So this law, the rule would say, hey, you know, if we put a detainer on somebody, you got to give us 48 hours before you release them so we can go or at least make a decision as to whether we're going to pick them up. And if you don't do that, if you're not willing to do it, you're not going to get law enforcement money. We're going to withhold the money. You want the money? No problem. You just cooperate with us in what I think would be reasonable efforts. All right, so the city of Chicago, the godfather, Rahm Emanuel, he's now filing, he is filing a lawsuit saying you can't force us to do this. You can't withhold or shouldn't be able to withhold money from us simply because we've decided that we do not want to cooperate with federal law enforcement officials. I think the mayor of Chicago and any other mayor who takes this position should be ashamed of themselves. I think they are putting the constituents, putting their citizens at risk for political correctness and political expediency, nothing more. 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. They've now filed a lawsuit. But uh, here's the broader question. I mean, do you have any problem at all? With the federal government saying, you want to be a sanctuary city, you don't want to cooperate, fine, but don't expect us to be giving you law enforcement money. You go it alone, just like if you make the decision, Wisconsin, to lower the drinking age to 18. You can do it, but don't expect the federal government to put in highway money. 414-799-1620, that's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I think this lawsuit is frivolous. I think the government, it is long overdue to say, yes. You need to cooperate Milwaukee, Chicago, Des Moines, wherever, Portland. You need to cooperate with the federal government. And if you decide you don't want to do it, 
fine, but don't expect the federal taxpayers to be helping you out with law enforcement. 414-799-1620 is the number. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 1043. We're broadcasting live from the Wisconsin State Fair. This is Jeff Wagner. It's 1046, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ, broadcasting live from the Wisconsin State Fair. Hey, coming up in about 15 minutes, we're going to be joined by Eloise Anderson. She's the Secretary of the Department of Children and Families, DCF. Um, we're going to be talking to her about a number of things. Right now, huge controversy over the notion of sanctuary cities. We know what sanctuary cities are. The mayor of Chicago is suing to try to stop the Justice Department from withholding funds from sanctuary cities. The feds say, hey, look, that, that's great. If you don't want to, if you don't want to hold illegal aliens for us, okay, fine. You want to release them to commit more crimes, fine, but don't expect to get federal money. I am 110% in favor of the Department of Justice taking the position that they're taking. I think it is irresponsible in the extreme for cities not to cooperate when it comes to people who are in this country illegally. Let's start with Dan and Oconomowoc. Dan, you're first. Good morning. Well, good morning. Great topic. Uh, I'd take it actually one step further. Any elected official from alderman, police chief, city official, president of the United States, doesn't matter. They took an oath to uphold and defend our laws in our country, and if they're not willing to do that, they should be immediately removed um, from office, and I don't care what position they take. You can't pick and choose it. If you want to change the laws, fine, but you can't pick and choose which ones you want to enforce. And then as if something happens bad in a, in a particular city, somebody gets shot or raped or whatever, that person should go directly after the city and directly after the official personally and go after them, and it, because that's the only way we're going to keep these people uh, feet to the fire, I guess. No, it's, I, I mean, I, I just agree. I mean, I don't, the whole idea, if you want to pick and choose what laws you enforce, is, is beyond me, and I, I think you're absolutely right. You take an oath to support and defend the laws of the Constitution of the United States and, you know, the state of Illinois or whatever, and you're going to make a decision saying, gee, I don't want to cooperate with immigration. I don't want to tell them that I've arrested somebody for a serious offense. I don't want to hold them so that the federal government can act. It makes no sense at all that you would take a position like that. Right, and otherwise, you know, work. if you want to change it, then work to change in the laws. Uh, right. You know, but you, you can't pick and choose. Right. No, thanks for the call. I appreciate that. Well, and also, I mean, I think, again, I understand that there is a highly vocal minority that of people that are out there agitating for, we think we should have open borders. We don't think that we should be deporting people. We don't think that they should be cooperating. And keep in mind, in the cases we're talking about, these are people in this particular situation, these are people who've been arrested for things. Now, I mean, in what real-world scenario do you have where you arrest somebody who is in this country illegally? What real-world scenario does somebody think it is a good idea to take that person who has been arrested, you know that they are here illegally, and then try to help them stay in this country illegally? I mean, I don't know that immigration is going to come out and deport everybody. They're probably not. But at least you give immigration the notice that, hey, you know, we just arrested somebody for murder, and they're going to bail out. Um, and, you know, there might be a concern that they might not come back or that they might commit some other crime. Hey, maybe you want to come in and you want to consider putting a hold on them, or maybe you want to take them and decide whether you want to start deportation procedures, proceedings. 414-799-1620. Tom in Fond du Lac. Tom, good morning. You're on 620 WTMJ. 
morning. Uh, number one, I have no problem with the government threatening to withhold funds. Number two, the Obama administration threatened to hold funds, withhold funds from universities that didn't honor the guidance letter that they sent out to uh, addressing campus rape. So this isn't the first time the government has threatened to withhold sure. funds. What happens and all the time? Yeah. What? You know, it happens all the time. The drunk driving, I mean, the, the legal age drinking, that's a classic example. It happens all the time. You're right. Republicans do it, everybody raises cane. When the Democrats do it under Obama, nobody said anything. So we have a double standard here. Yeah, um, thanks for the call, Tom. Well, that's not a surprise. Gee, a double standard. Yeah, again, here's the, here is the, the issue. And I, I go back to what our first caller, Dan, said, and he makes an interesting point. If you want to change the laws, if we want to say, let us make this country an open border. Let, let's not care about whether people come into this country legally or illegally. And let's not, if there's people that are here illegally and they get arrested, let's not send them back. Once you get across the border, you get to stay. If, if you want, if we think that that's the way to go, well, okay, let's have that discussion. Now, I don't think anybody with an intellect above plant life would argue that that's a desirable sort of thing. I'm not sure that there's any country in the United, in the world or too many countries in the world that they just have open borders. You don't do that um, to allow those things. That You have to have some regulation of your border. But this idea that somebody comes into this country illegally, commits crimes, and you are not going to cooperate with federal law enforcement in an effort to perhaps deport them and send them back, that is just, in a word, nuts. It's just plain nuts. And that is what the mayor of Chicago, the former chief of staff for Barack Obama, they are suing the federal government to try to advance a policy that I think is absolutely, totally, 100% nuts. Will they succeed? Who knows? Because once you get into the... Once you get into the court system, all you need to do is find that one judge that agrees. So I don't know how that's going to all play out. I have no position as to whether the lawsuit's going to succeed or not. But as a matter of public policy, as a matter of public policy, it's just absolutely, totally, 100% nuts. 414-799-1620 is the number. We're back with more. It's 1053. This is Jeff Wagner. It's 1056, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ, broadcasting from day five of the Wisconsin State Fair. Um, really, kind of a Chamber of Commerce day. Stop in, check it out. All right, um, speaking of nuts, there was an aggravating op-ed piece in the Journal Sentinel over the weekend, and my guess is you didn't read it because I'm not sure anybody reads their op-ed pieces anymore, but it, it has to do with the Milwaukee police chase. There's policy. There's, there's this sort of progressive... I don't know if it's fair to say a lefty, but this progressive think tank that um, operates with ways that law enforcement can change. It's called the Police Executive Research Forum, and their, their director is, is one of these guys that, sort of like Ed Flynn, they, they come up with these ideas that sound good on paper but don't work in the real world at all. Um, the, the headline is, Don't Revert to Police Pursuits That Endanger the Public. And it's a, it's a defense of the indefensible policy that Ed Flynn implemented with regarding to police chases, which is one of the things that I think has led to the spiraling crime rate in the city of Milwaukee. You know, we've talked about this before. As a general rule, Milwaukee police are not authorized to chase bad guys. The exception is if you believe that the person has committed a, a felony, or crime of violence, you can go after them. Otherwise, you've got to let them go. So they drive by you at 90 miles an hour, blow through a red light, you got to let them go. 
Um, you believe, hey, it's a stolen car. Um, you got to let them go. You just have you just. And then a lot of times, roving drug deals. Hey, okay, you know, this is, as we've talked about before, this is the new way that drug dealers operate. They don't have stationary drug houses. They have cell phones and cars. A lot of times they're stolen cars. You want to buy dope. What you do is you call up this number, and then they say, hey, we'll we'll meet you at so-and-so a place. So it's not like it's a drug house that you can surveil anymore. And these drug dealers, they run regularly. It's all those type of things. And everybody knows that under Ed Flynn's policy, the Milwaukee police won't chase. The Common Council are frustrated with that. Citizens are frustrated with that. The cops are frustrated with that. It hasn't worked out as intended. Maybe... Maybe it might have made sense in 2010, but now it's just flat-out nuts. So there's this opinion piece saying, well, you know, when, when the police chase, occasionally citizens get hurt, All right, and, and, and they do. But, but the bottom line is, when people flee from the police, citizens get hurt. That's how you catch a lot of these people. What happens is they start to flee from the police. Are you saying that the cops shouldn't even try to pull people over? When people flee, they're driving 80, 90 miles an hour. But what's worse is they're driving 80, 90 miles an hour regardless, knowing that the cops aren't going to be able to catch them. And here's the other thing. A lot of times when the police decide that they're going to chase, they don't know why the person is running. All they know is, hey, the person made an illegal left turn or went through a red light or whatever. We don't know why they're running. We don't know if they've got, you know, 15 guns in the back seat. We don't know if there's two bodies in the trunk. We don't know if they've got half a million dollars worth of cocaine or heroin stashed in the back seat. All we know is that they're running. And under Ed Flynn's policy, they got to let them go. And once they let them go... The people go out and they steal more cars and they commit more crimes and you never catch them. So there's this silly piece suggesting, well, we shouldn't change the policy. That just isn't working in the city of Milwaukee. And, I mean, hopefully Ed Flynn will change the policy. He's so stubborn, you can't tell him that he's doing anything wrong. My guess is he might refuse, and that's going to cause the Fire and Police Commission to decide whether to fire him. As I've said before, I think the police chief has way overstayed his welcome. It's just time to move on. But if you want to read an infuriating piece that just is completely and totally divorced from reality, Look at yesterday's paper. All right, when we come back after the news, we're scheduled to be joined by the Secretary of the Department of Children and Families, Eloise Anderson. Stick around. It's 1059. It's 1108. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ, broadcasting live from the State Fair. We are joined by the Secretary of the Department of Children and Families, uh, Eloise Anderson. Good morning. Um, oh, I got uh, now. See, I got to turn your microphone okay, on. It's, good right, there you go. And see, it's it's amazing. You stopped by at the state fair. My fiance right outside the booth there as well, huh? Okay. So everybody stops yeah. by there. A good time you, at the state fair. It is. I you you were at a cabinet meeting. I yes. asked if they if they had cake, and you said. Jeff, they they the cream puffs. You know? <laughs> yeah, the Wisconsin idea. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's right. You can't go wrong with that. Hey, let's um let's talk a, a little bit general. First of all, what what does DCF do? Well, tell me a little bit about the Department of Children and Families. Well, we actually have three program areas. One, um, it, which is dealing with people who have barriers to work. So we have probably the largest work program in the state, trying to put mostly non mostly custodial parents back to work. But we've been focusing on non-custodial parents because what we know is if you get two parents working for the child, we get the kid out of poverty. Right. So we've been focusing on that. We do child care. So we subsidize child care for the poor. 
and we also license and oversee child care for the, for everybody in the state. And then we have the third piece, which is child protective services, which the counties by and large run. We run in only one county, and that's the county of Milwaukee. Milwaukee County, right? Yes. Other than that, it's run by all the counties. You know, one of the things we've talked about a lot on this program has been, particularly with the Attorney General, has been the explosion of of heroin, you know, opioid problems. And I know that's something near and dear to your heart as somebody who, you know, deals with, you know, the impact on children. I think we have two problems. I know on the eastern part of the state we have heroin and opiates. On the western part of the state we have meth. Really? And meth and heroin are really... Uh, undermining families. We have children coming into out-of-home care, which means coming into foster care, from families we've never seen before. Our counties are getting overwhelmed. It's, it's, it's really bad. And the overwhelming would be either mom or dad develops the drug problem yes. and then just everything goes to hell. Yes, and we have to take the kids. And we need foster parents. We need people who are willing to step up and say, I'll take care of this kid while the parents get rehabbed. And some some of the parents... Uh, it takes so long to get them back on the right track that we can't get their kids back home to them. It's it's a crisis in the state, but we're not alone. It's a crisis all across the country. I think what most people are so surprised at is the crisis in areas in which we don't expect. So it hits many more people in affluent areas, and it's really devastating the rural areas. You know, it, it's interesting because when, when I've gone out to some of these seminars, um, I mean, everybody thinks of, for example, heroin as being an urban problem and the truth is it, it it's not you have these stories in the suburbs about you know kids that maybe they start by you know raiding the mom and dad's you know medicine cabinet and then you know so you get the prescription drugs and then it leads to heroin and you see i'm sure the same thing with adults you know who are responsible for children and can't, can't take care of them and sometimes it starts with an injury that you're trying to heal or a tooth or something like that. But one of the things the governor has done is put $5 million in the budget. I'll be glad when the budget gets done <laughs> yeah. so the counties will get this, um, trying to deal with some of this issue. I, I want to talk, you talked a little bit about, um, you know, W-2 and, and, and that. Mm-hmm. You know, for there was a time in Wisconsin's history where, we were, but before you had the welfare reforms, we we were kind of a magnet. Now, things have really changed dramatically, and I'm not sure enough people know about you know how how W two um, has has really kind of worked and how few people are participating nowadays. Yeah, um, back in 1996, uh, maybe been even a little earlier than that when Tommy Thompson was the governor, he changed from AFDC uh, Aid for Families with Dependent Children to what he called Wisconsin Works, which right. is W-2, and he, we call it W-2 because we want people to think about this like a, a job, like when you get your W-2 form. Okay. And so back then, uh, we dropped a lot of people off the rolls. Then the recession hit, and the recession hit, and so we had our numbers go way back up. And when Governor Walker came in, we changed our thinking again around W-2. And what we decided to do was not put so much emphasis on the change on the people who are getting services, but on the people who are providing the services. So we put a performance system in place. And now we've had probably the lowest number of people on W-2 than we've ever had in the history of Wisconsin. We've stopped being a magnet for people coming on what we call welfare. Right. We might be a magnet for other things, but it's not that anymore. If you come on our program, you're going to work. Now, 
some people, some critics would argue that that's, that that's not fair, that there's people who aren't able to participate, there's people who don't have enough time. I mean, I know one of the things the governor has always said is that there's, there, he's convinced that there are jobs that, that are out there for people, and, and really the trick is just trying to essentially arrange placement. If you come on the program and, and you have some kind of disability, this is probably the wrong program for you. Right. But many people have disabilities, I, I would say almost all of them, want to work. Right. We just have to have the job match. Uh, what happened to me in the early years, which turned me around on the whole notion of work, I had a guy come in in a wheelchair, had no arm use. He used everything with a pencil in his mouth. And the first thing he said to me was, I want a job. It totally turned my view of work around. If this guy in a wheelchair couldn't use his arms, had to talk with a pencil in his mouth, who wanted a job, there's no reason for everybody else can't work. One of the, I think, concerns that people have had is that a lot of times there, there's people, particularly in some of the urban settings, maybe young people who make mistakes and then those mistakes kind of haunt them. I, I, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the Transform Milwaukee Jobs mm-hmm. Program, which I know is, is kind of a, designed to address things like that. Mm-hmm. Well, Transform Milwaukee Jobs Program tries to deal with a lot different barriers than we try to deal with in our W-2 program because mostly this is focused on non-custodial parents which are mostly dads and dads have a lot of the same problems that moms have but they usually have some other ones usually have to do with criminal justice issues but what we found is we can get people jobs if they have the right thinking in their head if they show up from work have good attitudes there are jobs out there for them, right? They, if they want to work they and want. they're willing, right? They're willing. Like I've always said, I mean, you know, showing up is ninety percent of it. You know, right. really, yeah. Right, and have a good attitude, and a lot of people will take a chance. A lot of people will give people a second chance. Some people will give them a third chance. It's that's all it takes. And there are a lot of employers around who are willing to do that. So we've been putting people to work. We've been we've got about sixteen hundred people we've put to work and trained, I think what happens is that we don't think about men in the same way we think about women, and we need to. Right. We're talking to Eloise Anderson, who's the Secretary of the Department of Children and Families. Obviously, the the thing that's been in the news, Secretary, is um, the the Foxconn. (laughs) And, you know, how does Foxconn play in potentially to, to what you do? Well, I am very excited. Because people look at Foxconn and they look at engineering jobs, and I look at Foxconn and I said, you know, there's a lot of jobs here. There's the direct jobs that they're going to produce, which are engineering and assembly work and all those kind of things. But there are going to be a lot of businesses that come to support what they do. So that's the secondary market of jobs, and then there are going to be third tertiary jobs, and there are going to be restaurants, and there are going to be janitor. There are going to be jobs all over the place. So we're going to be able to hopefully be able to change the nature of southeastern Wisconsin to what it was when I came here. And what it was when I came here was the manufacturing center of mm-hmm. the world. I think we're going back. It's going to take us back to that. And so, and so, and so I mean, the, the appeal, is, I know a lot of people are saying, okay, well, th- there's going to be a skills gap because some of the jobs that Foxconn's going to be hiring, right now you, you don't have people trained to do them. Your point is there's going to be lots of different jobs lots that are out there jobs, for people right. to do. Yeah. At all levels. And I don't 
know if we don't have the people to do them. They just might not be located in the right places. We might have them in Superior. We might have them in Rhinelander. We might have them in La Crosse. But this is going to affect the whole state. It's not just going to affect southeastern Wisconsin. And I think we can step up to the task of doing this. And I think the people are here. Mm-hmm. We don't have to go looking someplace else. And, you know, we talk about engineers. We think about Madison. But Milwaukee has the Milwaukee School of Engineers. Do right. we ever put that on the top of our list? It's on the top of our list right now. So I think we can do this. Right. And our tech schools, they're, I think they're going to be putting out all the kind of secondary people we need. We can do this. Right. I'm, I'm so positive about this. Well, I, the thing I've been saying for the last couple of weeks since this news was breaking is how would we have felt you know, a week or two ago when this announcement was coming out, if we woke up and saw that the, this, this was going to Detroit instead of going to southeastern Wisconsin. I mean, I, I guess that's the way I just I, I look at this. And I understand that there's an investment, and I, you hear the arguments about corporate welfare and all, but this, this it could be a game changer for this. Well, I don't think you get something for nothing. You know, I grew up believing that everything has a cost to it. Our cost is small compared to what Foxcom is going to be bringing in. And I just think we have to learn that some things you have to pay a little bit for. And this is one of those. So I don't think that what we're giving up for them to come is even close to what we're going to get back with this. So I think for Wisconsinites, we need to have a very positive attitude for this because this is bigger than just Foxcom. This will turn the whole economy of the state around. Eloise Anderson, the Secretary of the Department of Children and Families. Thanks for joining me from the State Fair. I appreciate it. We're going to take a quick break. It's 1119. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. It's 1121, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. It's time to schedule watch and scoreboard watch in Major League Baseball. Is it possible the Brewers haven't faced their toughest stretch yet? Greg Matzik examines the rest of their August slate during Sports Central at 607, live from the Wisconsin State Fair, sponsored by Pella Windows and Door. A special thank you to uh, Secretary uh, Anderson. She's, um, I, I perhaps did not give her the big... No, you guys can come up here. See, see, this is the this is the this is the fishbowl at the state fair. My my sister-in-law and you know my nephew Alex, they're here. My fiance's here with a couple of her grandkids. We're going to go out and just kind of enjoy the fair. So you guys don't have to hide in the back there. Everybody wants to see what you look like. For goodness sakes! In any event, I, I didn't give Secretary Anderson probably enough to. She um, ha- has been. She's nationally recognized as being really a, a leader in welfare reform and children's issues and things and i really appreciate her spending some time with me this morning um again i think one of the things with this foxconn and it's just it it underscores what the potential of this may be because you know we we think about okay just the jobs that might be created in the technology industry but as she was talking about you know there's going to be all sorts of support jobs that are there and if if you're trying if you're worried about kids and you're worried about the quality of life, one of the things you do is you try to raise mom and dad out of poverty. And if you can have decent jobs, well, that's perhaps a a way that you can end up accomplishing that. All right, speaking of decent jobs, we were talking a couple weeks ago about what what the phrase made in America means nowadays. Because I know there's all sorts of people that are there. You know, we want to buy American. And I, I understand why people want to buy American, but I think one of the questions is, what does that 
actually mean when you say you, you want to buy American? I, I bring this up because on Friday, Toyota and Mazda announced that they are planning to build a new 1.6 B as in billion dollar vehicle assembly plant in the United States. And the estimates are that this is going to create, you know, 4,000 jobs. With the capacity to produce about 300,000 vehicles annually, they estimate the plant is going to be operational by 2021 as part of, of this venture. They haven't they haven't decided where precisely it is going to be. Um, part of this is believed to be in response to the president's talking about how you know you know we're going to like crack down and with tariffs and stuff. Um, so this is a way. I think candidly, it's one of the reasons Foxconn is considering doing what Foxconn is doing. But so now you, you've got Toyota and Mazda saying that they're they're going to build this giant assembly plant somewhere in the United States. All right. 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet talk and text line. See, I, I appreciate this whole concept of, of made in America and by American, and I'm down with it 100%. All right, so now, if you have this plant, and there's other plants as well, if you have this plant that's cranking out 300,000 Toyota and Mazda automobiles, are you buying America, buying American, if you if you buy the Mazda, are you buying America American if if you buy the Toyota? What does buy America mean? And does this now solve the issue? Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. What exactly is buy American? And if you buy one of the cars that's made one of the three hundred thousand cars that comes from this plant, are you buying American? even though you're buying from Toyota or you're buying from Mazda. We discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. If you want to join us, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. It's 1125. We're broadcasting live from the Wisconsin State Fair. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. What exactly is made in America nowadays? I mean, there's the new story out that Toyota and Mazda says that they're going to be building a plant somewhere in the U.S. by 2021. They're going to be investing $1.6 billion. They're going to be hiring 4,000 people. They're going to be producing 300,000 vehicles. All right, if you buy a Toyota that's made at this plant, are, are you buying American? Actually, I, I think you, you are which kind of underscores, I'm not sure what it means to say buy American anymore. Bill in Northern Illinois. Bill, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Hi, Jeff. How you doing? Real well, thank you, sir. Um, what do you think? I, I actually do think you're buying American. It's being made here. A lot of the parts plants are, are here as well, which isn't mentioned in that story, I assume. And then when you think about not only the people that are working in the plant, all the truck drivers, the carriers that are moving the vehicles, all of the UPS, all of the secretarial, the ancillary jobs. I work in a company right now where we import product from China. I'm not proud of it, but it is. But we have so many people that are driving trucks and working in the office. And, you know, I just think the widget is not the most important part. You know what I'm saying? Well, no, I, I, I do. I mean, and that's. I mean, thanks a lot for the call, Bill. I appreciate. It. I mean, what what you're looking at is it a it is a global economy, and and the truth of the matter. You know, I was talking about this a couple of weeks ago, and there was somebody, 
and I think he was he was getting hassled because he said made in America, and it, it was made in America except for like one tiny component wasn't made in America because that component isn't made in America. So people were saying, well, maybe you shouldn't be able to use that slogan. Well, I, I don't know what I don't know what that means because again, if you've got a car that's being assembled in the United States, well, yeah, that that's being made in America. You are in fact buying American even if it's a Japanese company, aren't you, Dan in Exonia? Dan, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Good morning. Um, you know, made in America, I would pay for the made in America, like a car. But you take like a Toyota Camry, you know, they hold their resale. They're good running cars. And if you take the American-made comparable car, they're, they're not as good. So I would pay more for the American-made, but it's got to be something that's going to compete with the foreign-made. And what if you got, okay, and so what if, I mean, I don't know where they make Camrys off the top of my head, but what if they start making Camrys at wherever this plant is going to be? Are, are you then buying American if you're buying a car that's made at this plant? Well, with how tight things are, you know, you're talking about making a budget and you're trying to follow that and stay ahead of the game. I'm going to buy whatever is going to give me the most value for my money. If an mm-hmm. American-made product is just a little bit more, I would pay a little bit more to support an American worker. But that product has got to be equal. I got to sure. balance a budget and you know keep my family ahead of the game too. Sure. Now, thanks for calling, Dan. And I, I don't disagree with that. It's all about value. I guess my larger point is, you know, when, when we say buy American or made in America or you know uh, you know uh, we want to support you know American companies. Well, I mean, I don't know if Toyota spends one point six billion dollars, you know, building a plant, hires four thousand people. I mean, are, aren't we really supporting? Yes, they might be based. You know, headquartered in Japan, but aren't we really supporting an American company? And I, I think the answer is yes. It's eleven thirty-six. Jeff Wagner, six twenty WTMJ, again broadcasting live from the Wisconsin State Fair. It is a beautiful day. I'm going to actually take it in. I have. My family and extended family out here, so we're going to be enjoying the State Fair. Tremendous. Um, the tradition continues. The bike riders are out again this year at Packers Training Camp, and one little girl has stolen the show. Watch the experience she had with her newest football friend. You can see that in the Packers section of WTMJ.com. I, I was... Um, I, I, I teased this segment by saying everything old is, is new again. Um, it's interesting. When I was a kid... Now, growing up, I, I can remember, and, and you perhaps can as well, if you were a certain age, that the way um, families spent time together is families would get together and they play games. You know, maybe it was the old-fashioned games like Monopoly. Maybe it was kind of the card games like the Uno or the various card games that were out there. Maybe it was the dice games, the things like, like Yahtzee. But that was how, you, you, you know, you spent time. Well, technology developed, and so we went through a period of time where now, you know, board games kind of fell out of favor. What ended up happening is, you know, everybody had the handheld video games, and and that's what everybody was doing. You know, it was all this idea that, you know, we're not going to do stuff where we interact with all sorts of people. We're going to just, you know, we're going to play, you know, everybody's going to have their own whatever, and they're going to play the different games, the handheld video games and things like that. Interestingly, that is starting to change. There is, and I was looking at a story in USA Today, um, there's been a renewed interest in board games. Get this, sales of hobby games 
um, in the U.S. and Canada have grown 21%. Now, that's a... That's th- these hobby games that they call this. Um, they're they're sort of the um, you know some of the games where you end up doing like the role playing and things like that. Um, but but they are starting to grow, and they're saying that just in general, these type of things are becoming more and more mainstream. And then it interviews a number of people who run some of these you know different stores that sell games, and what they're finding is the the old fashioned traditional board game is starting to again, go through the roof, that it's making a resurgence. Now, it's not necessarily threatening the, I don't know, the video game culture and stuff. And, look, I, I fully understand that the vast majority of money that's spent on these recreational things is ended up going to, like, these videos and things like that, the, the traditional video games. But more and more families are, are going back to the, hey, let's play these various board games. All right, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I think, I think that there's something, you know, going on here, and and I'm not going to suggest that I think you know the the traditional board games, the monopolies of the world, the Yahtzees of the world, the dice games or whatever, the card games. I'm not going to suggest that this is going to like completely you know kill the the video game industry. Of course, it's not, but I think more and more people, particularly more and more families are going back to this kind of board game mentality. The idea that this is something doesn't cost a lot of money. It's something we can do with the family. It's something that we can sit down as a family and get the kids all together, and we can do, and we can kill an evening doing this. We can have fun. We can interact. We can, heaven forbid, actually even talk to each other. And I think that's one of the things that's driving this renaissance. And then what I think you're seeing happen is you have kids that grew up maybe playing these different board games with their parents, and then they're graduating into some of the more sophisticated type of board games. So, I mean, there maybe is a future outside of the pure electronics world. 414-799-1620, that is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Is this, is this just a fad? Or is there really something going on here? And I guess particularly if you're somebody that, again, plays these games or plays the games with your kids or or does this as part of like a family tradition, I'd be interested in hearing your perspective because I, I think there's something going on here. And I'm fascinated, as always, by pop culture, and I think this is a pop culture phenomena. I understand that people are into their cell phones and people are into their video games and all, but, but I think these traditional board games, this thing that you can do with people and other people, there's there's something about that, and it's it's not going away, and it's not going to change. 414-799-1620, that is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Let's start with Sam in Northern Illinois. Sam, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Good morning. What do you think? Well, um, for one, I don't think it's a fad. I think it's great, and I really think that people are kind of grasping onto this, especially you have the older games, but there's a lot of newer games coming out for kids and adults. And uh, when I say adults, I mean things like Cards Against Humanity, if you're familiar with that. Um, but I would take it a step further because I actually not only have my family, but I invite my other family members and neighbors to come over and play, too. And it gives us an opportunity to socialize and just kind of get to know each other better than you normally would at just playing a video game. Now, the first couple times you did that, so if, if you talk to your neighbors or something, say, hey, we're having a board game night. I mean, do they look at you like you got two heads, like you're crazy, or do they say, hey, I think that might be fun? 
no, they they light up. They're like, really, that's great. I would love to sit down and play video games. And it's like, it, it, it's an opportunity to sit down and socialize. And honestly, you get to know your neighbors a lot better in some ways more than you want to. But you get to know your neighbors a lot better than you would just by saying hi over the fence while you're mowing the lawn. Yeah, it's interesting. Thanks for the call, Sam. I mean, I remember... Um I learned to play bridge. My I learned to play bridge because I didn't play bridge when I was growing up, but my mom did. And um, once I once I was an adult, it gave me something to do. So I, I went as an adult. I learned how to play bridge so I could play bridge with my mother. And you know, we I remember that she had these like there were these like neighborhood bridge clubs. You know, there was the thing that um, you know the the ladies got together during the day and they had their thing, and then there was like a couples thing at night. My father had no interest in doing that, so I mean, I would go. It was something I could do with my mom and i can remember we you'd go over to neighbors houses or they'd come over to her house and you'd, you'd, you'd play and it was a way of again socializing over that particular game as an aside um my mom and i as bridge players she was very good i'm not sure i and i was i was never obviously as good as we but we played in completely different ways it actually it probably drove this like father mother or this the son mother relationship she said jeffrey why did you play that card and i said well because why did you play that card but but it was something that we could do and i it was just it was interesting when sam was talking about well you know you're talking to the neighbors it was it was a chance you get to know the neighbors because you go over to the house you play bridge michael and delafield michael you're on 620 wtmj good morning good morning jeff thanks for taking my call yes sir listen um I'm a big advocate of uh, board games and bridge and everything else we learned in this kid. Uh, we played them. Uh, we as a family play Tripoli a lot, especially sure. on the holidays, my kids. But I don't think as a uh, culture today we are conducive to that because of the families having two incomes, uh, one working at night, one working at day. Uh, it's very difficult for the family to do that today. I just because that. of the time, just because of the time commitment, you think that's involved. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I, I don't see it happening. I mean, I, you know, everybody's too busy with the kids doing sports, running around. Yeah. Um, that is a lot more important uh, to the family unit today um, because of the competition. But like you're saying, board games with the family, it's like a family dinner on Sunday where you get to sit yeah. down and talk to each other. And right. Yeah. It, it doesn't work that way right now. I don't believe it. Huh. So, well, thanks for the call, Michael. It, it'll be interesting. I mean, I don't know what, what the ultimate answer is. I, as as somebody who grew up playing board games, I hope this is making a comeback. And again, there's the two types of board games. There's the the traditional stuff that a lot of us, the Strategos and the Monopoly and all. And then there's the you know more complex games um, that, that involve strategy and these type of things. And, and that's where the, that's where the numbers are are really going. I mean, I'm looking at a story. Big name retailers like Target. Target on Friday launched 70 exclusive board games. I mean, they say that there's bars and cafes popping up to provide enthusiasts places to play. So it's the kids and the families, and then it's also the the millennials, the young adults. Dave in Waukesha. Dave, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Hey, Jeff. How are you doing? Good. Is, is this I, a fad? No, I don't think so. And the reason, the reason being is a these kids haven't been exposed to it. It's new. It's new to them, just like video games are new to I'm, I'm about your age. You know, right. we were playing everything from this to Monopoly to, you know, whatever. And it's, for them, it's new. And one of the things that I always did with, with uh, when my kids were all, they're all in their 20s and 30s now, but every New Year's Eve, we play Yahtzee. We're yeah. Trouble. You know, just as and in fact, even just two weeks ago, my daughter wanted to know, if, you know, her and her boyfriend, she wanted to come home and play Yahtzee. You know, so <laughs> I mean, it's still, 
it's out there because it's just something that they've not been exposed to on a regular basis. It's not, you know, it's unique. They, her and her boyfriend want to come over to play Yahtzee. Wow. Well, he wanted, he wanted, well, he wanted free beer. So <laughs> okay, but he, you know, see, no, he, he's, he's willing to he's willing to play Yahtzee to get free. I like Yahtzee, by the way. I think that's a lot of fun. It's a blast. I mean, that's, I've been playing that forever. And then, then there's some, like you said, some of the strategic ones. I don't, I don't know if you ever played Risk when you were younger. Yeah, sure. I, I love Risk. Absolutely. I, I still remember that. How you start to learn all the electoral, electoral college votes, you know, and stuff like that. But, like, oh, I no. No, I, I, absolutely no. That, right, no, but uh, no, no. Risk was all about world domination. Yeah, world I was domination. into that back then too. Hey, thanks yeah. for the call, Dave. I appreciate. I, it, this is kind of an interesting trend, but I mean, I, I pointed out because if you're if you're shopping at Target, for example, this week, you know, and and you go into like their game section, you're going to see all these now exclusive board games. The reason they are putting them out is because. They, they think that there is a demand for them. It's 11.46. This is Jeff Wagner. We're broadcasting live from the Wisconsin State Fair. It's 11.50. Jeff Wagner, 6.20 WTMJ. A particularly attractive crowd gathering outside our State Fair booth. It really is. It's, it's an absolutely wonderful day. Um, matter of fact, I'm, 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 my, my fiance is here with a couple of her grandchildren, and my sister and brother, my brother and sister-in-law are here with my nephew. We're going to go take in the Wisconsin State Fair. It's uh, so come on out. Um, also, uh, reduced admission, kids 11 and under, free until six o'clock. So it's a great opportunity to come out and enjoy the State Fair. Um, I, I will tell you this: I, I am being told by my sources that the the announcement of the Foxconn site is. Is imminent um, now. Imminent means. I, I, does that mean today or tomorrow? Not necessarily. But I, I think the the plan is to move this Foxconn proceeding ahead, full speed ahead. Because the truth of the matter is, you know, every day that you delay is a day that you know more that it is from you know breaking ground on this and creating all these different jobs. So I mean, I would not be surprised within the next week or so to see an announcement come out. And I think. You know, it's going to be in one of those areas that people are talking about. That's what everybody's telling me. I mean, whether it ends up being in southern Racine uh, County or northern Kenosha County, not not sure. I think there's right now a lot of developers that are going out there and trying to look at what the availability of land is and how much you're going to end up having to pay, which is one of the you know, real serious considerations for people that own some of that land there. If you've got land that's worth about seven grand and somebody comes knocking on your door and offering you fifty grand for per acre for that that space. And it's worth seven. I guess you can hold out if you want to, but at the same time, sometimes um, people who end up holding out—they're the ones that get left holding the bag. But everybody tells me that this selection site is imminent. I understand that when we talk to Foxconn, there's some people that have some of these considerations and some of these concerns about whether or not is this going to be one of these deals where they're, they're not going to follow through, and. Everybody's saying that that is just not a factor in this case, that Foxconn is committed to coming, and they're coming you know, big time, and it's going to lead to thousands and thousands of jobs for southeastern Wisconsin. And won't that be wonderful? 